0: So today we come to an amazing chapter, chapter five of the book of Revelation. Let's read it together. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the a scroll written, and uh, scroll a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you... Now we're going to take this in two parts this morning. First, The first part is the, the dramatic search for someone to open the scroll. And then the second part, the spectacular worship which ensues after someone is found to open the scroll. So let's start with this dramatic search for someone to open the scroll. And of course, we don't have time this morning to cover all the details. There's quite a bit more in the notes than I'm going to be able to get to this morning. So I refer to, uh, you to that to read later. So as the curtain opens, and this is a two-part vision, chapter 4 and chapter 5. All the same context. And as the curtain opens for the second part of this vision, in chapter 5, the camera zooms in on the one who is on the throne. And in particular, what is in his hand? It is a scroll. The first century version of a book. But it isn't just any scroll. It has two noticeable distinctives one it is written on the outside and the inside meaning it's very full and has lots to say and yet the second thing is that it was sealed shut with seven seals meaning you remember seven seals means, seven, means completely sealed so it means that It is shut tight and there's no access to it. It's prevented from being opened. And then there appears on the scene a mighty angel with a big question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one steps forward at first. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll or to look inside of it. And so John begins to weep because there's no one to open the scroll or to look into it. And then in the silence punctuated only by his weeping, suddenly one of the elders says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John looks up to behold the lion, but instead he beholds a lamb. The lion was a lamb. Somehow you could tell that this lamb had been slain, and yet it was alive. Now, when we come to the lamb, we know the significance of a lamb in the Bible, especially. A slain lamb. It makes us think of the sacrifices. Whereby a person's sin is transferred to an animal. And then that animal is slaughtered and burned on the altar. Symbolically punishing the animal for the sin of the person. This is vividly seen in the Passover for instance. When the blood of the slain lamb. Was then painted onto the doorway of each Israelite household so that the angel of death would see and pass over that house and not bring death to that house. But the lamb that we're introduced to here in this passage is not a tame lamb or a tame lion, he has seven horns. And again, seven means ultimate or complete. Horns represent power. So he's almighty. He has ultimate power. This little sacrificial lamb. I'm not going to get into the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. You can read that in the notes. It's obvious that this lamb who finally Comes forward to open the scroll is Jesus remember that John the Baptist when he uh, first saw Jesus he pointed to him and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and from this point on in the book of Revelation Lamb is the predominant title used for Jesus 27 times from here to the end of the book he is referred to as the Lamb But what is the scroll, and why was it sealed up? And what's the point of this big dramatic question about who can open the scroll? And what is the dramatic silence when no one steps forward who is able to open it? And why was he introduced as a lion and then appeared as a lamb? So let's go through these questions. In order to understand the sealed up aspect of the scroll. We have to go back to Daniel chapter 12. Where God gives Daniel these visions. And then he says Daniel shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. For the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. So this implies that whatever it is that God has revealed is to be sealed up until some future day, till the end times. Now, the meaning and fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecies was largely sealed up until the time of the end. Even the prophets who prophesied didn't understand how their own prophecies were to be fulfilled. We see this in 1 Peter one to 10-12. Even the angels were struggling to figure it out. We learn in that same passage. Until... The right time came for the mystery to be unveiled. This aspect of John's vision, this hiddenness, this sealedness of the uh, scroll, seems closely related to the New Testament theme of mystery. I'm going to read three passages, I could have read eight. But I'm going to read three brief passages that talk about the mystery. Romans 16:25 to 27 refers to the mystery kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. Colossians 1:25 and 28 to 28. Paul says, "I became a minister to make the word of God fully known." The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. Paul says, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And Colossians 2 1 to 2 actually calls the mystery Christ. So the mystery is all of this it's God's plan of redemption, it is Christ, it is the gospel, it's the whole package, all the elements of the gospel. Including the fact that all peoples shall come including the fact that the Holy Spirit will be poured out and indwell mankind the scroll doesn't just have information in it it has redemption in it and opening the scroll means redeeming the world according to all the promises of the Old Testament ok so what then is the dramatic delay between the angel's question and the introduction of the lion of Judah? Who is the fulfillment of all these promises? Well, it's the period between the prophet, prof, prophetic messianic promises and the coming of Christ. During that time, God's people languished for the promised salvation to be revealed. We even sing about it. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. And over time, from the Garden of Eden to the prophet Malachi, God kept depositing more and more amazing promises into this treasure chest of messianic anticipation till it was bursting at the seams and it raised the question, how could any person possibly fulfill all of these grand expectations? And yet, it never came to fulfillment. The time stretched on and on. They kept thinking that the fulfillment was just around the corner, but it kept not happening. The world was languishing without salvation, in hopelessness, in darkness, in despair, in helplessness. And the people of Israel kept waiting and waiting and waiting, enduring unspeakable suffering and yet no Messiah. This is the reason, I believe, for John's tears when no one stepped forward to open the scroll. And then, when the fullness of time had finally come, God sent forth his son, Jesus. And all the promises of God found their yes in him. That's why through him, we utter our amen to God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 Along with the rest of the cosmos as we see in, here in Revelation 5. So if you're in Christ, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are your eyes for they see, and your ears for they hear. For truly many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus was the great secret weapon that God was preparing all through history to redeem the world. That's why the scroll was in the hand of God. It was his scroll, his book, his plan for redemption. To bestow upon his son at the right time. Just as the ancient of days handed authority over to the son of man in Daniel's vision in Daniel 7. God wasn't going to entrust this responsibility to just anyone. He was only going to give it to his chosen one. No one else could do it. No one else could redeem the world. But why was Jesus introduced as a lamb, I mean as a lion, and then appeared as a lamb? Why wasn't he just introduced as a lamb? Well, in Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah was definitely portrayed as both a lion type ruling, conquering figure, and as a lamb type figure, especially in Isaiah 53. But messianic expectation reached a feverish pitch in the first century because of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 2 of a stone that carved out of the mountain that would crush the kingdoms of the world and bring them all to an end. And so many were expecting the Messiah at that time during the fourth kingdom, the kingdom of Rome. But they were expecting a conquering lion. But when Jesus came, a lamb showed up. Even John the Baptist had trouble with the lamb part, so much that he sent word to Jesus asking if he was really the one after being the prophet who was supposed to be, come and say he's the one. And Peter did too. He said, You can't go to the cross. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. Little did they know that the way that he came to conquer was by dying. This is why Jesus is introduced as a lion and yet appears as a lamb. Though he definitely showed some characteristics of a lion... The lamb had seven horns, after all. His nest was largely reserved for his second appearing at the end of history. His central work in his first coming was as a lamb, an atoning sacrifice on the cross. He conquered, but through suffering. He triumphed but through the cross. He was a lion who conquered by becoming a lamb. And in this, Jesus didn't just accomplish a great thing. He also modeled something for his people. In verse 5, where it says that he conquered, it's the same Greek word used there, as is used in the seven letters to the seven churches whenever it says, and to him who overcomes, I will give this and this and this and this and this. He conquered, we conquered, the same way that he conquered. There was a great contrast between who Jesus was and the way that he acted in this world. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and became a servant. And now he calls us to be lions who conquer by being lambs, to be kings who conquer by becoming servants. And so when we are despised and rejected, we are following in his footsteps And we are doing so not as nobodies, but as kings. So when Jesus calls us to suffer on his cross, we must not get offended as John the Baptist did and as Peter did. Later, Peter said, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4. This is how we overcome. This is how we conquer. Now the second part of this is the climactic um, worship this is really, chapter 5 here, this from 8 to 14, is really, in my opinion, the Mount Everest of worship in the Bible. Here, in the uh, last chapter, we thought the, the worship was over the top. Remember, it was twofold. We saw the four living creatures saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then we saw the 24 elders falling down and casting their crowns before him and saying, Worthy are you, for by your will all things exist and were created. But here in chapter 5, 8 to 14, the worship swells to a whole different level. It's actually sevenfold. First, the four living creatures fall down before the Lamb. Then the 24 elders also fall down before him and sing a new song. A new song because something new has happened that that no one has ever praised God for before. That Christ has come and redeemed. And they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So that's the first two. As they do this, the 24 elders are each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which represent the prayers of the saints. So, wake up. You realize you're in this picture. You and I are in this picture. This is not only amazing and beautiful that suddenly we're there, but it tells us something important about our prayers. Our prayers play an important cosmic role in the world, though the world scoffs at them. And even we take them lightly. But in the presence of God in his heavenly counsel, they are not ignored or forgotten. So after the mention of the prayers of the saints, there comes a vast multitude of angels saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive seven things. Power. Power. Wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. So that's four of the fourfold things. Then they're joined by every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So that's five. And then... The four living creatures say, Amen. That's six. And finally, the 24 elders fall fall down and worship, apparently for the second time, finishing the sevenfold worship service. So, amazingly, added to the worship of the four creatures and the 24 elders from last week are the prayers of the saints, the praises of the vast multitude of angels, and then finally or the, every bird, every land animal, every uh, animal which burrows underground, and every creature with, which lives in the water, praising him as well. Quite a cast of characters. You know, some of you enjoyed watching the World Cup this last summer. And this coming Sunday, a week from today, is Super Bowl Sunday. These two events probably represent the closest thing on earth to the worship here in Revelation chapter 5. The enthusiasm, the drama, the devotion, the exhilaration of victory. It's a lot more passionate than in church worship services, to be sure. But it doesn't even begin to compare to what we find here in Revelation 5. For some, it's hard to believe that what happens in churches on Sunday morning has any connection to the fantastic scene of corporate adulation we find in Revelation 5. It sure doesn't look like 50 people singing holy, holy, holy are the ones who are participating in the spectacular scene of ecstatic exaltation that we find here in this passage. Now, I'm not saying that church worship shouldn't be more passionate, more wholehearted, more exuberant than it is. It certainly should be. But even so, that doesn't mean it's not real. That doesn't mean it's not connected to the scene in heaven that we have before us this morning. And the way we know that is that there are many little stories of worship, quiet subtle stories of worship throughout the scriptures that are definitely connected to this great spectacular scene of worship very real and yet not with all the, uh, the spectacular things that went along it which are very rare even in the scriptures what makes the worship of this, these two chapters so big is that God and the lamb are right there present. You know, if God and the lamb are not present in times of worship, what what are we doing in worship? And if he is if they are present, if he is present, how can we act the same in their presence as we would In just ordinary times of our lives. Now this doesn't mean that we can't laugh in worship. It doesn't mean we can't stop and figure out what's wrong with the microphone for a moment. It just means that in everything we do in worship, we do it with the awareness that it's not just us here. It's God that's here. Now non-believers don't see that. To them a church service is the epitome of boredom. A pathetic religious charade. And there are, honestly, church services which are pathetic religious charades. And we ought to despise them as Jesus himself despises them. Look at Isaiah 1, 11 to 15 sometime or Amos 5, 21 to 23 and you'll see how God despises the religious worship of his people sometimes because their hearts are far from him. But when people gather sincerely in the name of Jesus, because they love him and are grateful to him and feel needy for his help and encouragement, worship is nothing less than an encounter with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All my church experience as a child was Boring and meaningless to me until I met the living Christ. And not only did it change my church experience, but worship of God became the very center of my life. Everything else in life flowed out of my knowledge and experience of God. And that's the way it needs to be. And so not only is this scene in Revelation 4 and 5 centered on God in the Lamb, But it forms the center of our lives. Everything. Not just even our worship services. Our very lives are centered in this worship. And then one final thought. Did you notice who made the big announcement that, you know, weep no more, the the Lion of Judah, the Root of David is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who made that big announcement? It's one of the 24 elders. Now, I don't think it's a mistake or irrelevant that one of the 24 elders announced it. Remember that the 24 elders seem to have been a combination of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 apostles. I assume that the one who introduced Jesus was one of the apostles because their job was to tell the world that the Messiah had come. Jesus communicated himself to the disciples. And then he called them to proclaim him to the world. Now, in our day, it is left to us. We have the apostles' proclamation in his word. But it is left for us, his people and his church, to proclaim Jesus to the world. To say, weep no more. The Lion of Judah and the Root of, and the root of David has conquered sin and death now this isn't the end of the story uh, even though next week you know we move into a whole nother level of weirdness it begins the story of the opening of the seven seals that are upon the scroll and in particular, the first four, which are the, first, which are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, known as that. So we'll talk more about that next week. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the amazing scene that we have here. And though we can't grasp it all, what a powerful depiction of the coming of Christ and of the uh, despair into which he came and the longing and the waiting that went on and yet dear Lord when he came he was more wonderful than anyone could have anticipated and we thank you dear Lord that he's coming again we pray that you'd help us to be ready. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.